College football is back. Nick Carparelli, executive director of bowl season, joins us to talk about the 44 bowl games taking place this season, his new bowl season stories podcast, and leadership lessons from Bill Belichick instilled in him during the Patriots' first Super Bowl run. Then, Gina Miller of FC Dallas stops by to discuss the club's new teenage phenom, Ricardo Pepe, and what he's like off the pitch. She talks about what it will mean to bring the World Cup to Dallas in 2026 and the Ted Lasso effect on American soccer. Finally, one half of the Ben and Skin show on 97.1 The Eagle, Ben Rogers joins us to talk about their new show, Life on the Run in Dallas Media, his newest venture, The Roller Town Brewery, and the power of positivity as the secret to success. So let's drop the mic and let's go. Welcome to the Mic Drop, everybody. Kevin Sullivan here, joined by Monica Paul, the Executive Director of the Dallas Sports Commission, along with our next level intern, Marcus Carr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Monica, it's episode 29. We're still forging ahead, having fun. For me, our dedication this week is an open and shut in case. Number 29 has to be Adrian Beltre. A lot of interesting Rangers wore this number. Pete Incavelia. Rusty Greer, Julio Borbone, even Oil Camp Boyd. They wore it before. Of course, that number has since been retired by the Rangers. Uh, Beltre for sure is going to go into the Cooperstown in 2024. Uh, Eric Dickerson wore 29 in the NFL. DeMarco Murray had a had an all-pro season uh, wearing number 29 for the Cowboys. Uh, no Maverick, interestingly, has ever worn number 29. So we're going Adrian Beltre all the way. And just Monica, a quick mention this week of, of episode four of Hard Knocks, not my favorite episode of the year. It was kind of fun seeing Micah Parsons uh, beat Leighton Vander Esch and connect four <laughs> while Micah's mom fed everybody. That was kind of cool. Sad to see Hard Knock favorites, Isaac Alarcone and Jaquan Hardy not make the 53, but of course they are staying around for the practice squad. I liked it better when in the old days when they called it a taxi squad. And you know what, Monica, where that term originated? No, I have no clue. Well, it was because that, you know, in the NFL, they would keep some guys hanging around in case there was an injury. (laughs) But the reason it was called the taxi squad is because they could take a taxi to the stadium to play. They wouldn't have to put them on an airplane. So they called it the taxi squad. Now, of course, it's much more sophisticated with the practice squad. And we've got, you know, 16 or 17 guys instead of six or seven. Uh, but we're glad that Jaquan Hardy, who were favorites, uh, he and Isaac Alarcon were favorites on Hard Knocks, uh, will make the practice squad. Monica, the Dallas Sports Commission, as always, is humming, but you are really humming. Tell us about El Super Classico at Fair Park coming up this weekend. Yeah, big game this weekend. Uh, Mexican club rivalry with Club America versus Chivas out at uh, Fair Park on Sunday, I believe, 4 p.m., um, should be a, a really a passionate crowd. Uh, looking forward to about 40,000, 50,000 people. It's a uh, uh, be kind of celebration of Mexican Independence Day as well. So another great uh, soccer matchup for us, kind of building upon what started in, in March over at Fair Park and definitely something that we hope to continue into the future as we uh, roll towards a decision on our World Cup bid. 
We've got some other things coming up too that you're bidding on. Yeah, we do. Uh, so this week has been uh, very busy. A lot of uh, deadlines due right before the holidays. Uh, one of the first things that uh, we submitted actually last night uh, was for the CrossFit Games for 2023, 2025. And that's about, you know, that'll be about uh, 20,000 people uh, coming into town. Obviously, we, you know, there's a lot of CrossFit uh, gyms and boxes uh, across the nation and a lot here in the in, in Dallas area. So uh, really looking forward to integrating some of those uh, people and um, businesses within our bid. And ho well, hopefully as we progress, next step will be site visits and whatnot. But I uh, think it'll be a, a great opportunity and something a little different that we haven't hosted before in the past. Uh, another big one is uh, I know we've talked a lot about World Cup uh, soccer and FIFA, but uh, at the same time, we're kind of parallel bidding uh, World Cup uh, rugby for 2027 and 2031, and then a possible women's World Cup rugby for 2029. So uh, both of those, I think, will be moving fast. Uh, decisions probably maybe even before we know if we're hosting World Cup uh, soccer in 2026. You know, growing up in Caldwell, Texas, Monica, as a sports fan and an athlete, uh, I can't, can't imagine that you could have envisioned the day you'd be talking about working on CrossFit games and rugby and some of the other sports that you get to to bring to to Dallas in, in the area. Now, Sully, uh, it's you fun. <laughs> Caldwell, Texas has a big whopping 3,000 people, and uh, I'm pretty sure we had uh, just the regular sports. I mean, uh, actually, in high school, we didn't even have softball, so if I wanted to play softball, that had to be in, in the summer months in a, in a separate league. So uh, it was very, you know, basic, the volleyball, the basketball. I played golf, track. Uh, but I don't even think I'd heard of rugby uh, uh, back in uh, in my days in high school, along with some other sports. I mean, I watched the Olympic Games, and there were some new additions of sports uh, this year. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I couldn't have even, even thought uh, of that as a sport back, uh, I'm not even going to say how many, many years ago uh, growing up in Caldwell, Texas. But a long time, back in the day, you know, Sully. Well, you know, the one thing that Caldwell, Texas does have, and it's coming up, September 10th oh. and 11th is the Olachi. 36th annual Kalachi Festival, uh -huh. which in, which which includes the Kalachi Crunch 5K. <laughs> Did you have a hand in bringing no. that event to, no, uh, no. to your well, hometown? The Kalachi Festival is definitely a, uh, a staple, I, I have to say. Um, interesting point. Here. No, I didn't. I'll answer the question first. No, I had no part in a, in a 5K. Uh, I'm not much of a runner myself. Uh, I used to run every now and then, but definitely not not in uh, not right now. Um, but I will say, you know, the, the Kolach Festival. Um, my grandparents or my grandmothers, both of them, grew up uh, making kolaches. So I'd come home from school, uh, go over to their house, and there'd be fresh kolaches there. The the fruit kind, the pastry kind, as well as uh, those with whether it be sausage or, or meats and and whatnot in the middle of them. So during COVID. Um, I had an extended time period and I, my mother gave me the recipe, uh, my grandmother's recipe for kolaches. So I've actually started making kolaches myself. Uh, haven't since, uh, probably in the last year, but definitely during, uh, uh the early parts of COVID. They actually t tasted pretty good. I was proud of myself for my first try. Well, and I apologize for mispronouncing. I guess it's kolach, huh? So, well, so, yeah, I'm, so. I'm a hundred percent Czech. So, um. Yeah, I, I can get in a I can get in a debate over uh, the pronunciation pronunciation of it, but I'll let that go for today, Sully. Another another uh, notable announcement in, in uh, Dallas Fort Worth a week or so ago with PGA Tour champions 
and Club Corp officials announcing the debut uh, of, an, of a new stop on the PGA Tour champions that'll involve celebrities, uh, the biggest names on that tour, uh, as well as regular, uh, you know, civilians uh, with the Club Corp Classic at Las Colinas Country Club, which will be in April of 2022. Tell us about that event. Well, I think that's that's pretty exciting. I know I've had a lot of people reach, reach out from a, just a membership standpoint of Club Corps, and they're like, really, is this, uh, we have an opportunity to qualify and play in it? And we're like, yeah, actually you do. I, I don't know the 100% specifics on the regional and national uh, competitions to, to get those members to be able to play in that in the classic, but, uh, you know, over 50 celebrities uh, looking to be playing right alongside the pros along with uh, um the reg regular amateur golfers uh, around the United States that are club core members. So uh, that'll be April 18th to 24th, uh, 2022 at Las Colinas Country Club. So uh, with the PGA moving here uh, and uh, definitely another boost and increase to our uh, uh, golf resume. And another, another great big event. We love big events in North Texas. And speaking of which, Monica, it is college football season. Ooh, We're going to yes. have Nick. Yes. Nick Carparelli from uh, Bowl Season will be joining us in a moment. Uh, Monica, you've got the Raging Cajuns of Louisiana Lafayette visiting your Longhorns uh, this weekend. My Purdue Boilermakers are playing host to Oregon State Saturday night in a game that will be watched by almost as many people watching Clemson and Georgia. I'll be watching. Uh, let's hope both of our teams are 1-0 after, after Saturday. We've got Abilene Christian visiting SMU and Northwestern State. Uh, coming to Denton to take on the UNT uh, Eagles, the Mean Green. So, so it, it is exciting to, uh, to to have college football season upon us. What are your What are your expectations for your Longhorns? Oh, I, I'm you know we're we're winning the national championship, Sully. I mean, come on, we say it every year, and you know, unfortunately for me, I think the past few years it's uh, the very first day of college football is not only the first day of my college football, but the last day of my college football, because uh, I don't know, you can just tell sometimes with the Longhorns, but I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm going in with a positive attitude. I love college football. I think the only thing we're missing uh, so far is uh, the crisp fall air that you associate college football with. So uh, I'm a uh, wake up on Saturday, walk out with my cup of coffee uh, on the back patio, back porch, and I like to, to feel the at least somewhat cool. It doesn't have to be, you know, chilling to the bone, but somewhat cool weather out there. So I think give us a few more weeks. Maybe we'll get some more. Uh, it'll cool down a little bit here. But excited to turn that TV on and, and see all those college games. And uh, I don't know, for me, I kind of feel like, um, I won't say last year didn't happen, but with everything we were all going through, I think uh, the landscape, the feeling, the, the passion, the excitement for certain things was maybe not uh, 100%. So uh, I, I'm ready for some college football. All right, me too. And we're back in a moment with Bowl Season Executive Director Nick Carparelli. But first, over to, over to Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. Okay, Sully, it's really my favorite new event here in Dallas. Join the Perot Museum of Nature and Science every Thursday for Thursdays on Tap. Experience a museum after hours with a 21 plus crowd and you'll enjoy live music, drinks, and food trucks. Plus you get full access to exhibits all night long. It's the perfect date night. Visit perotmuseum.org for more information. Thanks, Rachel. Now it's our pleasure to bring in Nick Carparelli. Since December of 2019, Nick has served as the Executive Director of Bowl Season. This is the organization partially based here in North Texas 
by the way, that will oversee operations and revenue generation for 44 postseason college football games this season. That's a full-time job, folks. And Nick has had one of those cool careers, worked in athletics administration at Notre Dame in football ops with the New England Patriots for their first Super Bowl win, was in leadership at the Big East Conference, had a great run at Under Armour where he was the key executive in the monster 15-year, $280 million deal with UCLA, the largest athletic apparel deal in history at the time back in 2016. Nick, thanks for joining us here on the mic drop. Sully, great to be with you and uh, always welcome the opportunity to talk college football, especially leading into the first week of the year. Yeah, it is exciting. Now, the, the headlines are going to conference realignment and you know college football playoff expansion. What is the role, uh, Nick, these days in the college football landscape for the, for the so-called other bowl games? Well, you know, we created this bowl season brand and, and uh, you mentioned being partially housed in, in the Dallas area. You know, Tony Fay PR and his team were an integral part of that. They're my teammates uh, in this enterprise. And, you know, the bowl system has been around for 100 years, but they it's never been you know brought together and formalized as a sports entity in and of itself. They've all been kind of individual games, individual brands do a great job in their own communities. But what we did with the bowl season uh, brand by creating it is is really pulling the system together, uh, making it easier for the fans to understand that bowl games are part of a very special time of year. It's that three week period in December that college football fans across the country turn on their TVs. They don't even know what day it is. They don't know what time of day it is. It's the holidays. It's bowl games, and and, and they know they're going to find a great game to watch every single day. So we we created bowl season and really trying to use that as a platform to promote the entire bowl system. Uh, and to talk about all the great experiences and the memorable moments that everybody associated with bowl games uh, have enjoyed from the players, the coaches, the fans, and, the, and maybe most importantly, the members of the community uh, that hosts the bowl games across the country. Now, one way you're trying to bring that to life is through your new podcast, Bowl Season Stories. Uh, the first episode uh, was highlighted by Tony Dorsett telling his stories. Next week, you've got Kirk Herbstreet, you and Angela Lang of Tony Faye PR. You know, I thought the first episode was great. What do you hope to accomplish uh, with the with uh, the Bowl Season Stories podcast? Well, we we try not to outsmart ourselves when we name things around here. So we wanted to <laughs> we wanted to create a brand that encompassed the bowl system. So we called it Bowl Season. We wanted to tell our stories. So we named our podcast Bowl Season Stories. And, and that's exactly what it's going to do. Every week, we're going to have college football legends uh, on as guests. We're going to have guest hosts, uh, members of the media join us uh, to talk about current topics of the day in, in college football. And then at the end of the program, we're going to have various industry executives, a lot of um, uh, individual bowl game executive directors, occasionally some conference commissioners or other, uh, other business partners in the bowl system. And, uh, and we saw that a little bit with Tony last week. Uh, uh, episode two with Kirk is actually being released today. Uh, so everybody should go find that because, uh, you know, personally, as a, as a podcast host, uh, I made a big <laughs> uh, improvement, I think, from week one to week two. Uh, but uh, Kirk made it, made it pretty easy. He had great insight into college football in general, as he always does. He's got a new book out we talked about. And then we obviously talked about his memories playing in bowl games. You know, the, the people may not fully understand that ESPN owns and operates. What is it? Is it 17? That's right. Uh, yep. Bowl games. How, I, I guess that's a good thing, but how, how does that work? And how do you interface with, with, with ESPN and with the individual bowl games? Yeah. Well, uh, well first of all, every 
bowl game business model is different, right? You have the Rose Bowl. Uh, it's, it's been around the longest. You have the Cotton Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Sun Bowl that have been around second longest. Um, you know, they, they, they do things differently than some of the newer bowl games. Uh, some, some games are owned by professional sports franchises like the Texas Bowl, uh, the Pinstripe Bowl, the Quick Lane Bowl up in Detroit. And then you have the model where ESPN owns and operates their own games, which is different than just simply televising the games. They have a division called ESPN Events. And it's not just bowl games. They run a lot of those preseason college basketball games that you see uh, in November, uh, whether it be in Orlando or, or, or offshore in the Bahamas, et cetera. Uh, they run those. So as you alluded to, 17 bowl games they run. They're, they're um, you know, once you turn the TV on and, 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 and watch the game, or, or if you're a student athlete and you attend the game and, and you experience uh, everything that the community has to offer uh, where the game is being played, you know, they, they all kind of look the same at that point, but uh, just different business models. So Nick, you said something very important earlier of talking about your first few podcasts. So, uh, you know, I think uh, Sully and I remembering back to our first uh, few weeks of podcast, we hope that we've uh, progressed a little bit uh, beyond those first uh, fewer few podcasts. So we can, we can definitely remember what that was like of uh, getting them to this podcast business, but very glad that we well, did. You caught, you caught my attention when you said I said something very important because that's rarely the case, Monica. No, no. So uh, we're about to get into some more important things, but I have to tell you, I, I wish you best of luck on the podcast as a vo great vocal crew here. And of course, Tony Fay PR uh, as well. We wouldn't be able to do this podcast without, without them. So um, Nick, you were talking a little bit about, um, bowl games and, uh, and, and the importance of that, the 17. Well, we have four here locally within our, our market. Obviously, the Cotton Bowl Classic being the most historic and the, and, and the kind of the anchor here, but then uh, Armed Forces Bowl, the First Responder Bowl, and, uh, uh, and the bowl up in uh, Frisco as well. Um, I, I think we're a little bit unique in that there are four in, in our DFW market. How, I guess, how important in that is that? And is it possible for all uh, all four of them to kind of, I guess, remain relevant or have a purpose here within our community? Yeah, I think, you know, to answer that question, it's important to understand that the bowl system is in a lot of ways a market-driven system. No one's forcing anyone to host a bowl game. No one's forcing any team to attend bowl games. People just want to do it. Uh, and I think it's logical that the state of Texas has seven bowl games. The state of Florida has eight bowl games because of how important football is in those states at the high school level. And then obviously up through the college level uh, Four, as you mentioned in the Dallas Fort Worth area uh, really worked to my advantage, you know, last year, you know, when travel was a little bit difficult, I think uh, most bowl games were able to host maybe 10%, 20% fans. Uh, I had opportunity to travel with my son. We went to San Antonio one day to see the Alamo bowl, drove to Dallas, saw the, uh, cotton bowl the next night, the armed forces bowl the next day. And then the Rose bowl, uh, oh, in yeah. Dallas of all places. Uh, so we got to see four games in four days with only one flight. So that, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, um, obviously fan, the fan experience, the, the passion that the fans bring to the, to the event, obviously COVID had some, uh, challenge some of that. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the fan experience and, um, you know, we're going to continue to deal with COVID fans will be, uh, in, I think, to hopefully to full attendance in, in most facilities. What, what, could, what does that fan experience possibly look like this year at, at the bowls? Well, I, I think it's going to look different depending on where the game is played. I think we saw that 
from the onset of COVID. You know, every every state, every municipality uh, handles it differently, has different rules. Uh, the state of California is is uh, uh, has been really challenging, and the bowl games uh, that are how that were played there uh, were not played last year. Um, and it looks like some of the regular season college football games might uh, might have some issues to work through in, in that state. You know, other states are a little bit more more open as it comes to that. I think most uh, venues across the country uh, during the regular season this year and into bowl season are going to have full attendance. And um, gosh, I think back to a year ago, people were wondering uh, when you when it's okay to go back to games, are fans going to want to do it, or are they going to be hesitant? Um, I think we've seen in a lot of instances that, that, that people are far from hesitant. Uh, they're, they're jonesing to get back, uh, back in the venue, cheering on their team and getting back to normal. And I think we're going to see more of that this year than anything else. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. My fingers are crossed there for, for many reasons, both personal and, and business uh, from a sports commission standpoint. So, Nick, I used to keep up with this a little bit, um, but I get this question a lot of, man, there's a lot of bowls, uh, you know, 44 bowls. Is there possibility of adding additional bowls at this point, or how does that process work? Well, I think 44 is probably as big as we can go. You know, we're, we're, we're probably going to need to take a couple teams that are sub 500 uh, to fill the last few spots, if history is any indicator of uh, the number of bowl eligible teams, which is not a desirable outcome. Uh, however, it's, it's hard to predict from one year to the next before the season starts how many bowl eligible teams are going to be. And I think one of the things that speaks to how popular and uh, bowl games are, you know, institutions do not want to be six and six and, and not have a bowl opportunity, you know, especially if you're the only one. Uh, it's so important to them. It's so important to their student athletes to get that extra practice time. Uh, it helps in recruiting to be able to have their team uh, experience a, a part of the country that they might not be able to travel to normally and to play one more game. A lot of people you see that game as the a bowl game as the the last game of the season, kind of a reward for the regular season. Some people look at it as the beginning of the next season, kind of a launching point, and they use that additional practice. Uh, the bowl game to kind of sort out, you know, what it's going to look like next year and they get a little bit of a head start. So there's so, so many reasons why uh, bowl games are meaningful. Uh, and it's, it's just different from one program to the next, depending on who you are, where you come from, whether you're uh, rebuilding or whether you're an emerging program or one of the established brands. Nick, before we let you go, we've got to ask for a Bill Belichick story. You had, a, you had, you worked closely with, uh, with coach Belichick and your time with the Patriots, what, uh, what did you take from him? Maybe from a leadership standpoint and, and just what was it like being around him? Uh, it was awesome. Uh, now I, you know, somehow I did something right and he liked me and I had value to him. So it was awesome. <laughs> I've seen the flip side of that. And, uh, if, if you're not very good at what you do, he, he might not have much time for you, but um, it, it was a great experience. I'm friends with him to this day. Um, I, I, you know, I live here in Maryland and the town over from Annapolis where he grew up, uh, actually at my kids go to his rival high school. So he likes to, uh, um, bust my chops about that, but we were, uh, I took my boys up to tr uh, a training camp practice this year and he swung by and visited with us, with us for a little bit. And, and he's awesome. You know, I learned so many things from him, but just, uh, consistency, preparation, uh, treating everybody equal and that the whole, his whole mantra of do your job. It's there, there's a lot more depth to it than just those, those three words. It's do your job, do your job well, 
and do your job regardless of how big or small you or anybody else might think your job is. Because as soon as one little aspect of the program uh, isn't done right, uh, then bigger things tend to break down. So uh, learned so much from him. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, good luck in your work as we get college football underway here. Uh, best of luck with, with our sister podcast here at Vocal Media, Bowl Season Stories. And, and uh, maybe we'll check in with you again down the road, Nick, but thanks for coming on. Would love to. Thanks, Sully. Thanks, Monica. All right, Nick Carparelli. And now over to Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. Dallas is known for its big wins when it comes to sporting events. Whether it be Final Fours, Winter Classics, Pro Drafts, or even international soccer matches, Dallas sets the standard. And now it's time for our biggest win yet. We want the 2026 World Cup. The Dallas Sports Commission is working hard to bring the World Cup back to our great city, and we need your help. Head over to DallasWorldCup2026.com to sign the pledge to bring it back. Be sure to follow us on all social media at World Cup Dallas to stay up to date on all things 2026 World Cup. Thanks, Rachel. And this is going to be a fun one. We're happy to be joined by Gina Miller, Vice President of Media and Communications with FC Dallas, and so much more. She's also the host of pre- and post-game coverage on the club's broadcast on TXA21, where she has to clean up after Mark Followell. I'm just kidding. Uh, an award-winning career in broadcasting. She's been a sportscaster in LA and, of course, here in Dallas at Channel 8 and Channel 11. Well-known and appreciated by our listeners from her years as host of Cowboys, Mavericks, Rangers, FC Dallas, and Stars pre- and post-game shows. Gina started out her career as a Houston Rockets intern under the great Tim Frank, who now runs things at the NBA. With the Rockets, uh, of course, Gina teamed up with Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler to lead Clutch City to an NBA championship. She's also a Pearl Jam fan, a mom, and Monica, we've had lots of media on the mic drop who we talk about how they paid their dues and the small markets they worked in. Gina did that too in Guam for crying out loud at KUAM TV. Welcome to the mic drop, Gina Miller. Oh my God, Kevin Sullivan, the pleasure is all mine. I just want to bow down to you and kiss the ground that you walk on. It's so funny. You mentioned the Rockets days. Yeah, I was working under Tim Frank and Rose Peterzak at the Rockets as an intern, and I didn't know anything, as you well know. Whenever we had a problem, the solution would be to call Dallas, see what's going on, talk to Sully, talk to Tony, see what they have to say. Uh, you're, you're very, you're very kind. Thank oh. you for that. Oh, Gina, you just you just made uh, Sully's head grow a little bigger. My gosh, we're gonna we're <laughs> no. not gonna be able to fit him in the it's, frame today. <laughs> it's deserving. It is all deserving. <laughs> well, Gina, th thanks for joining us for sure. Glad you're here on the mic drop. Um, I always kind of like to start and give some nuggets. You've spoken to my SMU class before, and Sully has just mentioned this very, very impressive long resume uh, of all of your accomplishments and the markets that you've been in. But uh, just to give probably some of my interns and others, you know, an idea, you know, you just don't always start at the top. You don't, uh, you may want to be a, a sportscaster and a broadcaster, but you're not going to just be put on Channel 8, Chan Channel 11 in a Dallas market. So starting off in, in, in Guam, where, how did that start? How did you get to that? And how did your uh, career launch? It's, it's so true. You know, we see a lot of young professionals today. They really want to do punch their tickets to the corner office. And, and the, the hiring landscape has changed. And with young professionals, because of the internet, because of some of the challenges we see, they do have a lot more opportunity at a younger age. When I started out in the broadcasting business, 
there were not a lot of opportunities for women in sports and there were not a lot of opportunities in major markets like Dallas Fort Worth where I grew up and wanted to spend my entire life working. So I, I recognized that and I knew that and I knew that I had to pay my dues. Didn't realize I'd have to go a world away to do that and pay my dues, but I'm so thankful for that experience. And, and that long career actually started with the Houston Rockets as a media services intern. I went to college at the University of Houston and I tried to get internships and opportunities at TV stations across the Houston market, which at the time was the 11th largest media market, great markets. The Oilers were still there. It was a phenomenal sports market at the time. Always wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And of course, no station would give me an opportunity. I had no experience. I was still in college and the Rockets had just gotten rid of their entire media staff. And I recognized that they they had a new woman on the job who was by herself. Uh, the great Tim Frank, as Sully alluded to, hadn't been hired yet at the time. He hadn't graduated Notre Dame. <laughs> she came from Notre Dame. So I pestered her every day for about three weeks. And this was pre-email when email was ubiquitous. I actually called her, picked up a phone and called her <laughs> and pestered her every day for three weeks. But I saw that as an opportunity working in media relations and media services to get to know all the media in the market which I did because the Rockets won a championship ring thanks to a trio of Cougars with <laughs> Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and me. I, I say that so jokingly, by the way. Um, but uh, that led to an opportunity at a TV station in Houston where I got to hone my on-camera presentation, learn how to shoot a stand-up, learn how to write for broadcast. And I knew that I'd have to get out of the market to really follow my dream career. And, and I sent out three resume tapes a week. These were when we did send out actual resume tapes at $3.76 a pop, sent out three resume tapes a week. And uh, the best job offer I got was to be the sports director at KUAM TV in Guam, which was smaller than any small market here in the United States. Um, Guam's main economic impact is courtesy of Japanese tourism. So we covered a lot of sumo wrestling, paddling, uh, middle school girls volleyball, and I did everything. I was an anchor, I was an editor, I was a reporter, I was a producer. We edited on three quarter inch tape, which was clunky and everything was humid on Guam. So the machine and equipment, all the, all the machines and equipment would always break right before we were going to air when we were on deadline, but that just taught me so much. It allowed me to learn so many fundamental principles of the industry, which quite frankly, they don't teach in broadcasting classes in college. It really is very much a trade and you learn on the job. That is true 20 plus years later. Uh, and I'm so thankful for that opportunity. I was the first female sportscaster in Guam and in Knoxville and, and dealt with some of those challenges as well. But I cannot stress enough the importance of learning the fundamentals of an industry, starting in a market or in a situation where you can get properly trained and learn how to do things because those baseline knowledge, that baseline skill set will, will help serve you the rest of your life. If we get in a pinch, I can still pick up a camera and shoot. I can still edit. Uh, and those uh, that has served me so well throughout the course of my career. Gina, I don't think I could have said it any, any better in terms of uh, learning those skills. And I look back on one of my uh, opportunities earlier in my career of like, wow, I had to do it all, build websites, uh, mm -hmm. run events. I mean, you, you, you pretty much did it all. And I look back, I may have not appreciated it maybe at the time I was going through, but I look back now and I'm like, wow, that's, that's a, a big part of uh, who I am uh, today and why I'm, I'm where I'm at in my career. So what was after Guam? How, what was that uh, next step, I guess, uh, like to, to, where did you go? 
Well, as a 22-year-old living on Guam, a tropical paradise, I had a lot of fun. Okay. I moved back home pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I learned a lot, learned what to do, what not to do, learned how to be a professional. And I, and I got a job, amazing opportunity, at the NBC affiliate in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, and, and this was SEC heyday. I covered Peyton Manning's last year, saw some amazing Tennessee, Florida games, covered the late great Pat Summit and the Tennessee Lady Volunteers during a number of championship runs. And while I was in Knoxville, again, did the same thing, producer, anchor, editor, reporter. We launched the very first Sunday night sports talk show in Knoxville's history while I was there. I was the producer of that show and talk about career opportunity. I mean, we're covering these athletes, you know, Tamika Catchings, Shamika Holdsclaw, Kelly Jolly, who's now the head coach at Tennessee. That's her maiden name. Still in touch with all these people that that I worked with and covered back in the late 90s in Knoxville. So that was just the, the opportunity in Guam was amazing, but it was really the opportunity in Knoxville that helped set the foundation for a true journalism career, understanding how to tell a story, working with uh, media, work or working with uh, athletes, college athletes, which is so different from working with professional athletes, uh, learning all those fundamentals and principles really were, were so important for me in my life. And But that's when I probably understood what it was like to be a woman in this industry and some of the challenges that that come with that and being the first to do that in a market. That's one of the things that was a real turning point in my life when I realized, oh, it's a little bit different <laughs> when you're in that room. Well, um, definitely uh, a, a solid career and uh, all the way up from Guam, all the way here to the to our uh, uh, FC Dallas right now, um, so uh, a little bit transition into soccer. I'm, I'm sure she's uh, she covered it along along the way in her career. But Gina, we want to talk a little bit about FC Dallas now and uh, some exciting news with teenage phenom Ricardo Pepe. Um, you know, big story uh, scored the game winner in the MLS uh, All Star game, two time uh, MLS uh, Player of the Week, I think. Um, but before we get to talk about his play on the on the pitch, what is he like kind of off the pitch uh, uh, as a as a teenager getting up to kind of the big leagues from FC Dallas? What's what's he like? He is a teenager and here he is right here. This is mm -hmm. not the countenance he usually has on, on his face. He's usually <laughs> sporting a smile. I can guarantee you he's trying to look intimidating <laughs> in that photo there. But he is just such a treasure. He's an 18 year old going on 27, 28. He's a young man who came up through the affiliate system, the true affiliate system within FC Dallas, starting in El Paso, playing for our affiliate in El Paso, coming to North Texas, playing in our academy system, moving by himself at the age of 14 without his family, which automatically kind of makes you mature a little bit at a very young age living by yourself. Family ultimately moved here. He ended up being our very first signing for North Texas Soccer Club, our USL League One affiliate. Think of them as the Frisco Rough Riders to the Texas Rangers, sort of our double-A baseball affiliate, if you will. First signing for North Texas SC, won a championship ring with them the inaugural season in 2019. And then FC Dallas brought him up to the first team. And he has just been a pleasure to work with. He's grown and matured in front of our eyes. He's, he's young, but he's, like I said, mature. He, he was going through high school this season, graduated high school virtually 
in May. We had a virtual high school graduation ceremony for him and two other players, actually. And now he's, at the time of this recording, he is competing with the U.S. men's national team and training with them as the U.S. men go through their World Cup qualifying cycle during this period right now. And his maturity to handle what he handled last week during the MLS All-Star Game experience is remarkable. Because I think what I was doing at 18, I was being a knucklehead at the University of Houston. He was the center of the soccer world because A, he was this 18-year-old competing in the All-Star Game. B, he's a dual citizen, a dual national citizen. He has Mexican citizenship and US citizenship because his parents are from Mexico. He technically can play for the Mexican national team, the storied El Tree, or play for the United States. And that decision isn't just about soccer. It's about so much more than soccer. It's about nationalism. It's about pride. It's about patriotism. And whatever decision he makes is truly making a statement that transcends soccer. And he was asked that question every single day, multiple times, in multiple languages. And he handled it with the poise, command, and confidence of a man who has been doing this for 18 years in his career. He's truly a bright young man. And to think that he's just starting is remarkable. So Gina, you know, we're, we are both working on a big project that uh, we've been very vocal about in uh, our World Cup 2026 bid. So wouldn't it be remarkable to uh, see Ricardo Pepe here in Dallas, uh, in the United States, playing uh, World Cup matches in 2026? It would be amazing. And that is something Pepe actually said. When he made his decision, he posted a note on Twitter and he said, the United States has given me so much and my family so much. I am a proud Mexican American, but this country has given us so much and I can think of no better way than to give back to this country than to raise the World Cup trophy here. And, and we've had private conversations, right? I mean, this is exciting. Yeah. We've had private conversations about this and he wants to do it here on US soil. And what's so exciting, Monica, led by you and your leadership at the Dallas Sports Commission, this Dallas 2026 bid is really exciting. You know, my boss here at FC Dallas, Dan Hunt, is working so closely with you on these efforts. I think what we have planned and what we have in store and the hospitality that we bring in North Texas, along with the beautiful facilities, the infrastructure we have, the amazing airports, the great actual hard hospitality in terms of the hotels and the restaurants and the diversity across all of those assets really positions us perfectly to host meaningful World Cup matches. Uh, Dan's stated goal, as you well know, is to host a semifinal or final match. And I think there's no better place to do that than right here in North Texas. You heard it right there, ladies and gentlemen. Gina Miller just sold us the World Cup right here. Couldn't have said it any better than that. Put that right on the website, Monica. Yep. Oh, we will. We will. Make that graphic. I'm going to go Let's get make the graphic and just make everyone else for all the host city bids angry. I'm kidding. I'm kidding with that. No, no. Gina, you, you know, you know, a good story when you see one, what do you wish Dallas Fort Worth sports fans knew about FC Dallas that maybe they don't know. And maybe that would, would inspire them to come out and watch the club in person. I think what's so unique about this club is that we are building the next generation of us men's national team players. You want to see the guys who will be lifting world cup trophies for the United States. They're playing and training right here at FC Dallas. Our academy system and our pipeline has produced more MLS players than any academy system in the league. Beyond that, though, look at what we've done globally. Weston McKinney, 
came up through the FC Dallas Academy system. Brian Reynolds, the Fort Worth native, Weston McKinney from Little Elm. Brian Reynolds, the Fort Worth native, developed in the FC Dallas Academy system, now plays for AS Roma under Jose Mourinho. Tanner Tessman came to FC Dallas from Birmingham. He's now playing in Venice with Venezia, who just got called up to Serie A. Reggie Cannon playing in Boa Vista. I mean, these are national team players in the case of Cannon and McKinney. Brian Reynolds got a call up earlier this year as well, who came up through these fields, these 17 training fields, the stadium right behind me. They're developing their skill set. They're developing their game here in North Texas at FC Dallas. And if you want to see the guys who are going to change the game of soccer and, and the way that the U.S. men's national team competes on a global scale, it's right here in your backyard in North Texas. And what's so cool about these guys is that they're, they're, they're just like us. You can see your neighbor, whether it be a, a, a Reggie Cannon or a Kellen Acosta or a Weston McKinney, you can see your neighbor playing England in a World Cup match. That's absolutely possible. And you can do it right here at FC Dallas. You have quite possibly hosted more hours of pregame programming <laughs> than any person maybe on, on earth here in Dallas. When you look at it across your Maverick Stars, Cowboys, FC Dallas, Rangers, uh, what are the essential ingredients? This is a two-parter. What are the essential ingredients for a great pregame show? And who are, you know, who are the, not, you know, the best analysts that you've worked with or, or what does what a great analyst bring to a, to a pregame show that is most uh, helpful to the viewers? Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. Well, I was so fortunate to host pre and post game shows with my idols. I hosted Cowboys game day with Randy White. I had a doomsday <clears throat> defense poster on my, on the side of my bed growing up. I did. I, I truly did. And I also had the James Donaldson measure your height against James Donaldson, the former <laughs> I, Maverick Center poster. I remember my it well. Got yeah. a Tom Thumb, I think. It was a Tom Thumb giveaway. Yeah. I measured myself against that. Didn't host a pregame show with Tom Thumb, with uh, James Donaldson, but did do it with Derek Harper. And, and that was a dream come true. Did one with Nolan Ryan on the Rangers side. I was number 34 because of Akeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, when he was with the Sixers, and Nolan Ryan. And I'm going to answer your second question first. I think the most important thing to being a successful analyst from a pre and post game perspective is a knowledge of the game and not so much, you know, the X's and O's. And we know that's very important because the hosts always come to you for that inside analysis and expertise, but the story, the context, there is nothing more exciting when you're a viewer or a host, when you sit there and you listen to Randy White talk about going head to head against old NFC East teams, the Washington football club, the New York giants, the hated Philadelphia Eagles at veteran stadium, hearing Randy tell those stories on the air, whether you experience them live as a Cowboys fan of the seventies and eighties, or you're experiencing it now for the first time, hearing an expert like that, tell those stories and deliver those moments gives you chills as a viewer and as a host, and it really helps you understand the history of an organization and why that's important. Tactically speaking, knowing what's happening in the game, understanding the X's and O's and how they may be different from when they were when you were playing and how the game has evolved is so important from a host standpoint. From, a, from an analyst standpoint, from a host perspective, I have told broadcast 
students that they will do more homework once they leave college or leave high school than they ever did while they were in school. Because you have to research so much about a particular matchup. And again, it's not so much the X's and O's. You certainly have to understand the rosters, the coaches, but you have to understand the connections between the two teams, series history, you know, preparing for a Mavs Spurs game on TXA 21 was so easy because there were so many great playoff matchups there, but getting geared up for maybe a Mavs Knicks game, a little bit more homework there. And it's so important to do your homework and have an understanding of why this game is important, why it's, meaningful in the context of the season as well as in the context of the series and understand storylines surrounding the players themselves the coaching staff even the referees you know they they have so many wonderful stories as well but then also beyond that really developing that chemistry and rapport with your co-hosts and analysts and that's really developed yes in part on camera but the best conversations and the best chemistry development sessions I've had were in the makeup room with all these guys. You know, I mean, guys have to do makeup when they're on the air. And that's the most, that is, that is sort of the, the, uh, the water cooler in a newsroom or a water cooler in the studio is the makeup room. And really developing that chemistry with your co-host is so critical because then you can understand when he or she pauses when to jump in. So you're not talking over that person. You can understand when they're looking for a little nudge or when they want you to pick up where they left off from a thought. So chemistry is important. Homework's important um, from an analyst perspective, showcasing your wonderful personality, adding the stories that really add color to a game and, and understanding what's going on during the course of the game and not being afraid to voice your opinion, I would say, are critical elements for broadcast success there. On our very first episode of the mic drop, Back in February, we had Jeff Van Gundy from ESPN on. Of course, another Rockets connection for you. Uh, and by the way, before we get off the Rockets, I have to double back on Rose Peterzak. Uh, I didn't know that you were there when, in, during the Rose Peterzak era. She's now Rose Peterzak Carter. Yep. Uh, works at Penn State uh, doing communications for men's basketball and other sports. And you know, we're talking about the greatness of Tim Frank. Well, Rose was was pure badass in her own in her own right. And uh, I'm a big fan of hers too. So shout out to Rose yep. Peters, Zach Carter. Uh, on our very first episode, Jeff Van Gundy talked about Ted Lasso. And I was not a fan. I, you know, I was late to the show. I was skeptical, another fish out of water story. But eventually we had so many guests uh, on the mic drop, bring it up in the, our download segment at the end of the podcast. People kept bringing up that they were streaming Ted Lasso. So my wife and I got into it. We love it. Now we're caught up, which is heartbreaking. A new episode tonight. Uh, but on a, on a serious note, first of all, I assume that you've followed the show or, or watched it some. Oh, yeah. I've seen every episode like three times. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. I love the optimistic nature yeah. of it. There's We could talk. We could do a whole program on that. But a serious question. Has Ted Lasso actually uh, been a marketing tool for soccer in the United States? Has it have you seen an increase in interest uh, in FC Dallas because of people connecting with the game through Ted Lasso? It's so interesting you ask this question because we think very strategically how we can incorporate Ted Lasso into our content, right? Because there are so many Ted Lasso bit opportunities. And one of our players, Ryan Hollingshead, looks a lot like Jason Sudeikis as Ted Lasso when he grows a mustache. So Ted Lasso has done so much 
for soccer to raise soccer awareness. And we've thought very critically, you know, what can we do? We, we can do something with players that can uh, get them assessing whether or not this is accurate, not accurate. A lot of Ted Lasso is really accurate in the whole training versus practice thing onto the pitch. I mean, so much is so much is accurate there. And the challenges that people from America who don't know the sport have trying to learn the sport, particularly in another country, so accurate there. Um, it's certainly an opportunity. It's a unique opportunity for a lot of people in Major League Soccer because of the Kansas City connection that Ted and Jason Sudeikis have. And so Sporting Kansas City, another one of the original MLS clubs that the Hunt family used to own, uh, Sporting Kansas City has really been able to embrace that. They, they, they maximized that relationship, um, <laughs> that Kansas City partnership last year. Uh, we've, been, we've been thoughtful about that. It's certainly become a part of the cultural moment and we've we've embraced that and leaned into that and we want to do more from a content perspective to to entertain and engage our fans but um we're very thoughtful about doing something because that show is so brilliant doing something that doesn't result in a cringeworthy piece of content but it has absolutely introduced soccer into the water cooler vernacular which has been a challenge. You know, soccer tends to be a little bit off the radar outside of World Cup or Olympic um, Olympic years. And men's soccer has been a particular challenge in this country the past couple of years. The women's team has done so well, of course, and worked its way into the everyday vernacular. But the men's team presents a lot of opportunity. And, and I think Ted Lasso has helped all of us understand some of the beautiful aspects of soccer. People who may not be familiar with the sport, it's helped them understand the beautiful aspects of soccer. But it's, it's so funny you say that we could dive into this. I think there is a whole book or series about leadership lessons I learned from Ted Lasso. I, mean, I just, I feel like I've learned so much from him as a leader in working with diverse people, diverse cultures, different age ranges. I feel like I've learned so much from him. That's part of the show's brilliance. Yeah, I'm sure there are companies that are forming Diamond Dogs uh, advisory groups. Uh, who's your favorite character? I mean, I love Ted. I'm, I'm a Jason Sudeikis fan. I absolutely love him. A lot of people expect me to say Rebecca because of the female and sports thing. And I love her. I just hated her approach to hiring Ted. It almost hurt me. I love Nate and his career story in terms of coming up as the equipment manager and really asserting his voice. Again, it's a life yeah. lesson that I think we can all learn something from. So Ted, number one, of course, love Coach Beard for just his dry wit and his chess brilliance that I'll never get. But but Nate is Nate is so close to my heart. Yeah, I wish I could be more like Roy Kent in day to day life, but that's impossible. <laughs> I cuss like him, so I get it, you know. <laughs> Well, Gina, before we let you go, um, I, I want I have one last question uh, to kind of end this uh, of how important, well, we have a big asset uh, over in Frisco and, and, and in North Texas, that National Soccer Hall of Fame. You've got a, a big event coming up here at the end of the month uh, from an induction standpoint. How, how important is that to, to FC Dallas and just to our entire region? It's important to FC Dallas. It's important to North Texas. It's important to soccer across the United States. The National Soccer Hall of Fame here at Toyota Stadium really is the Pro Football Hall of Fame equivalent in Canton, Ohio, to our sport in this country. We tell the story of U.S. soccer, which dates all the way back to the 1800s. And it's and I don't want this to sound like a sales pitch, but 
It is where you learn about the history of this sport. It is where you learn about the superstars of the game who have lifted World Cup trophies in the case of the U.S. women's national team. Uh, we actually host all four women's World Cup trophies in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. That's how important this piece of real estate is, but it's so much more than that. It's a digital customized experience that tells a story of soccer through interactive experiences and exhibits and, and artifacts that date back to the 1800s. What's so exciting about this is that we're truly a dynamic, living, breathing place. And because we have the National Soccer Hall of Fame induction ceremony every year, of course, last year it was put on pause because of COVID-19 and this year's ceremony, which is October 2nd here at Toyota Stadium, the induction ceremony will feature the 2020 class as well as members of the 2021 class. And it's a chance to celebrate their contributions to the sport, winning championships, helping launch the game here in North America. And it's a celebration of a sport that so many of us played. So many of us grew up playing soccer and maybe went to a different sport as we got a little bit older, but it's something that so many people can identify with. And, and the celebration of that really does culminate on October 2nd for our Hall of Fame weekend with uh, Willie Nelson performing the post-game concert. He's one of those people you gotta see. You gotta see Willie in person and you get the chance to do that here uh, during Hall of Fame induction weekend. But it's a critical part of the story. Uh, it's helped us in our pitch to FIFA, Monica, yep. as you well know, and, and there's no better place to tell that story than right here in, in North Texas because the soccer community from youth to senior is passionate and it's rabid and it wants to be a part of the soccer story that continues to grow in our country. Well, I definitely urge our, our at least local listeners and actually if you're not local, come on into town. Uh, to take a look at that National Soccer Hall of Fame, the amount of work. Uh, it is very first class, one of the best uh, uh, Hall of Fames and uh, kind of museum type experiences that you could uh could ask for uh, a true celebration of soccer. So Gina Miller, thank you for joining us here on the mic drop. I am certain that you will be uh, uh, another guest uh, down the road uh, as we uh, get into some more World Cup discussion and uh, get a little bit closer to our, our decision date. But thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. This was such a treat, Monica. Sully, it's so good to hear your voice and see your face. Take care, everyone. Thanks again for having me. And now a word from uh, Rachel and a word from our sponsors. Did you know the Dallas Zoo provides guests with real-life opportunities to make memorable connections with more than 2,000 animals? Please support the zoo's mission to inspire and empower action on behalf of the wildlife in Texas and around the world. Visit DallasZoo.com to purchase your tickets today. Thanks, Rach. And what a blast to have Ben Rogers join us here on the mic drop, one of the all-time good guys. We had skin on a few weeks ago, so of course we had to have equal time. They're actually two different people. You think of, you know, Ben and Skin like it's one entity. This guy is a real person, Ben Rogers, and we're happy to have him on. Co-host with, with Jeff Skin Wade uh, of the uh, of a show, Ben and Skin, on the uh, 97.1 The Eagle. Before that, of course, long runs at ESPN 103.5 CBS. Uh, got it going on the ticket with a great run there. Ben, you're also in the brewery business. Let's start. Tell us about the Rollertown Brewery in Salina. And is it true you've got a beer called the Big German? That's true. That's true, Sully. How you doing, brother? Uh, so yes, we uh, Skin and I, as you can tell from the resume you just laid out, we've bounced around in the radio business. We started as P1s of the ticket who just love the ticket and still do. And we're like, wow, could we do that? Like we just sit around and talk sports with our buddies and goof off and, and make a living doing that. And 
we ventured out in, in that. So we, you know, we, we started at the ticket and uh, actually started at Fox Sports 1190, uh, which was, we didn't even know we were going to get our paychecks. But uh, then at the ticket, then it, uh, we went to, you know, live 105.3, then uh, the fan, then ESPN, then back to the fan, and now at 97.1, the Eagle. And through that process, we've learned to not trust corporate America. And so we were like, you know, we need to do something for ourselves where we have a little more control, where we could chase a dream and swing for the fence. Now, granted, we, we pursued and, and, and caught a dream in being on the radio. We absolutely love it but we don't own the radio station. So at any point they could come change formats or, or what have you. So we wanted to have something that we had more control of. And, um, you know, we were just looking for the right opportunity and, and we knew that we had built a brand for 20 years and had done it the right way, but we didn't have anything that was ours. And I was at one of my son's youth baseball games. And one of the dads said, Hey, we just bought a building that would be perfect for a brewery in Salina. And I thought, I know a guy who knows everything about beer and we've been looking for an opportunity like this. And so uh, I said, would you let me talk to my buddy skin and put together a pitch? And they said, yes. And we were off to the races. And, and um, so we started this brewery and as you know, the Mavericks are a huge part of, I mean, they're woven into the fabric of who we are, you know, we born and raised here and lifelong Maverick fans. And, um, and so we knew we were going to have a German beer, but you know, Dirk, everyone that knows Dirk knows you don't ever want to take advantage of what a special person he is. And he doesn't endorse a lot of things. And so we didn't want to, we were grateful to him. We've ridden his coattails throughout our entire media career. And so we wanted to name a German beer after him. And so we approached him, set up the meeting and, um, we were going to interview him for something else, but when we walked in, we were so nervous, even though we'd known him for so long. The first thing he said was, what's up donkeys. We're like, <laughs> what's up donkeys? I don't like he immediately made us feel at ease. And he said, what's up with the beer. And so we start telling him about the beer and to ask his permission, not to name it dirt beer, to name it the big German. And uh, he's and skin tells him this genius line skin came up with for the marketing of it. It said, uh, made with minimal hops, but a smooth finish. <laughs> and uh, he said, that's cold blooded. I love it. And so, so Dirk allowed us to, uh, to name a beer after him. And uh, so our, our brewery is called Roller Town. It's in Salina, Texas. And uh, we're a little over a year old now. And, and uh, we're in over 60 restaurants in DFW. And things are going really well. It's a lot harder than we thought it'd be, but uh, things are going incredibly well. Ben, do you have a beer coming up uh, named after Luca? No, we we uh, we don't. Um, we don't. I don't. He, God, he's barely old enough to drink. Uh, but you know, the thing about um, Dirk is, and and dude, I'm the I'm a huge Luca fan. I've you know, I've just like there. There's Luca right there watching us right now. Look at him watching, judging, looking. Um, <laughs> and there's Dirk right there. But uh, you know. Dirk is just so special. I, it, to me, it transcends beyond sports. And we've been fortunate enough to host uh, his charity events now for several years. And just to get to see the type of human he is, like he would sit at Dr. Pepper Ballpark after the Dirk Hero Celebrity Baseball game, and he would sign autographs until they turned the lights in the stadium off. Every other celebrity athlete had left security is ready to leave and get their shift over with. And they're standing next to Dirk and he's still signing 
till his hand is broken. You know, he's just out there. He's a true man of the people. Uh, he just means so much to me. And not to say Luca doesn't, but we're not going to name a bunch of beers after athletes. We just felt it was appropriate considering we were going to have a German beer and he's our favorite thing that's German. And I think uh, also uh, Luca may have to bide his time. I mean, it took a lot for uh, Dirk to get the, the name, the big German. So uh, we still have time for, for Luca down the way. Um, and I'm definitely going to have to head over to Salina and Rollertown because uh, I do like to try some, some different beers there. But Ben, um, you got a new show on the Eagle, a little less sports heavy the, than what you've done before. How are, how are you enjoying that? Oh, it's so liberating. Uh, it's, it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Um, so honestly, so we were, we were rappers. Okay. So we were failed rappers and I know looking at us, I look like a police officer. I don't look like a rapper. Um, it's shocking that we're not the hottest rappers in the world and maybe, maybe we were terrible, but, uh, we just knew we wanted to do something creative. And so, at the, at the time that I fell in love with the ticket, I, Skin and I were both rappers in this group together, and we were business card couriers. We'd go to this, this warehouse, they'd cut the business cards, we'd put them in our car, and we would drive our route and deliver those, those cards. And I, I was so broke, I had no uh, stereo in my car, I had a jam box in my passenger seat that had an antenna in it, and because the antenna was broken, it had a coat hanger antenna. And so I fell in love with the ticket in, in that way. And what I loved about the ticket was it wasn't all sports, 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 sports. It was guy talk. It was almost Howard Stern having fun, a bunch of guys in a bunker who are friends, and then also sports. And so that's what I fell in love with. But we, there wasn't room for us at the ticket. We had worked our way into being the sixth man at the ticket. Every show was ranked number one and had a long-term contract. And there was a time where one of the shows was going through a contract issue and the program director came to us. And at the time I was selling television advertising at CBS and doing this on the side. And our, the program director said, are you willing to quit your jobs to both of us and go full time on the ticket? And we were like, yes, please. And he goes, okay, don't quit. Don't quit. You haven't quit yet. And he, you know, he thought we might <laughs> quit in the first three seconds. And uh, the next day, those ticket hosts got their deal worked out. And so he was like, I'm sorry, we, we don't, there's not a spot for you. You're ready. So, and so we started at live 105.3 and that was a straight comedy show. There was no sports and we've bounced around again, running. For, there's a lot of East coast suits that get involved in radio. A lot of the companies are based in the East coast and these guys want to micromanage creativity and stifle creativity. And it's, it's just brutal. And so we've been on the run the whole time to get back to what we fell in love with at the ticket, because at some places they're like, no sports, sports, sports. You got to do 95% sports, 99% sports. And that's just not where our interests are. We like pop culture and we like other conversations. So to answer your question in a long winded way, um, the Eagle came, came calling and we were surprised. We, um, we didn't, we didn't know what to expect, but we were unhappy where we were because we, we didn't like being micromanaged. And so this is complete and utter freedom. And we've worked hard to get to this point. And a lot of hosts uh, don't ever see this point. I didn't know if we ever would, but you get to the point where they say, Hey, go create. We hired you. We trust you. We think you can put together a good show. Go do your thing. We'll support you. And that's the way it's been at 97 one Eagle. So we have a laugh riot from two to five. And 
it's not that we're not a sports show. I mean, we've had Dirk on and Cuban and Romo and you name it. We talk as much sports as we want to. And we get into sports every single day, but we're just not a sports centric show. We just talk about whatever we want to talk about. And I think it's the best thing we've ever put out on the radio. You know, Ben, congratulations on just pursuing the dream relentlessly, never giving up. And I don't know if you remember this, the time in 1999 when you and I first met and you, uh, I guess, had just graduated from North Texas and came to see me. I was doing the Dallas 2012 Olympic bid committee work with with the great Tom Luce. And you came over and basically said, you know, how do I get into media? How do I get into sports? What do you think? You know, you were kind of asking for guidance or whatever. And and I, I had no doubt, like after that meeting, I thought you would be successful, but I had no idea you would become the, the multifaceted juggernaut that, that you've become. Uh, what do you what do you think? You, you mentioned not stifling creativity. You, you, you and Skin obviously are incredibly creative, but you also have something that that connects with people. What do you how, how do you describe how you've been able to 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 be so successful with everything that you've really tried to do in your career? Well, that's very kind of you to say all of that. First of all, you asked if I remember that. Of course, I remember. It's one of the highlights of my life. Getting that meeting was unbelievable. Uh, of course, I had known who you were for several years. We had a mutual friend. And I was so excited to even get in and have that meeting. And uh, you're just one of those guys that I've always had immense respect for that I've never met anyone who didn't have immense uh, respect easy, for easy. you. Easy, easy. So, believe me, there's people out there. Well, uh, you're very kind. That's just, that was a big honor for me to even get that meeting. And it's something that I bragged about just even being able to get that meeting. I was bragging about that. Oh, um, man. But in, in terms of, uh, of, of people, um, I, I love to connect with people. I'm not, um, I'm not a pessimistic person. And, and you guys were just talking to Gina about Ted Lasso. I had so many people tell me I needed to watch Ted Lasso because it was right in my wheelhouse. Um, I choose positivity. And in a, when people, uh, I just choose to believe that people are good. And if I meet a stranger, I don't assume that they're terrible. Uh, how about that, everybody? Try that on. Um, you know, I assume that they're great and that they've, you know, if, they're, if we have a bad interaction, maybe they're going through something difficult. And I just love to truly connect with people. And I've always been that way. And my mom would tell me that when I was a kid, I always did that. And there was a, we had gone on a big family truckster road trip, like uh, Chevy Chase and the family. And we loaded up the station wagon and we had gone on this big ride across America. And at one point, and I think I, at the time I was like seven, maybe six. And they, we were waiting to go in a restaurant and they looked over there. They called me Benji. They're like, where's Benji? Where's Benji? And uh, they look over there. Like, oh my God. Oh, there he is. Wait, why is he talking to a guy at a limousine? And I was talking to a, a limo driver and I'd wandered over to him and I was basically interviewing him. And they walked over and they were like, is everything okay? And he was like, yeah, his kids just ask me how much money I make, if I enjoy my job and how long I've been doing it and what my interests are. I, I like people and I like to connect with people. And um, if, if that's played a role in any of this, I don't know. I, I think um, more than anything, I think my partner's skin is brilliant. And um, we talked about riding Dirk's coattails. I've been riding Skin's coattails now for about 40 years. And uh, we just have a lot of fun together. Well, th that is uh, that comes through loud and clear, and and uh, just you know, way to go. And I appreciate your comments on being being positive. 
So I think that's a, a good formula for happiness in, in, in life. And this is now the portion of the mic drop, Ben, where we ask our guests what you're streaming. What are you downloading? Uh, it could be book, podcast, movie, TV, uh, you name it. What uh, music, of course. What are, you, what are you streaming? What are you downloading? So I, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'm into, I guess, like anybody else. Um, uh, there's uh, an artist that I'm really into named Miles Maestro. Uh, I love this kid because, and I, I call him a kid because I'm old. He is a, uh, he's a guy who is a bartender at Rollertown. And he just happens to be one of the best pop artists I've ever heard. I can't even believe it. I'm like, I hear this guy, how talented he is. He's on Spotify. It's Miles Maestro. But uh, I want to tell you, this is random. This is going to be a curveball for you because I, I don't read enough. I wish I read more, but I don't read enough. But we recently uh, took a big road trip. We were on the road for a long time. So I listened to two audiobooks, and they're it's so random for me to I want to mention both of these to you. Uh, one of them is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, which right. is a book that uh, I believe Leonardo DiCaprio, they're about to make a movie and he's going to be in it. Scorsese. Yes. You know about this? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so it's fascinating and sad and tragic, but it was, you know, Indian culture kept getting, you know, you know about the Trail of Tears and they just kept getting pushed away and getting things taken from them. It's incredibly sad. And then finally, uh, they ended up on this last piece of land that nobody won. We'll say, we'll just put them here. Well, it just ended up being the richest land in, in America. And it was on top of all these oil reserves. And uh, so tragic story about what happened after people realized, oh, wait, uh, they're on the most valuable land. And then randomly, that led to me, I was just in that vibe. So I uh, got another book, Empire of the Summer Moon, which is the story of uh, the Comanche Indian, which I had never been familiar with their story, but Comanche Indians were initially these Indians that were probably at the bottom of the Indian power ranking. They weren't respected. They weren't good warriors. They, they weren't good at really anything. And they were, they were dying out. And this is in the middle of Indians being in charge of, of, of this land. And so here they are at the, at the very bottom and it just tells the story of how horses were brought into America and how Comanche Indians were the first to master riding horses and combat on horses and how they just dominated in the country and were the most fierce uh, tribe ever for so, so long. So uh, two fascinating stories. And um, it just makes me wish I'd paid more attention back in school because I now actually love history now that someone's not trying to force me to be interested in it. You're right. Did not see that one coming. And I will check out Miles Maestro. Monica, what do you have for us this week? Well, before I get to next week, Sully, I, I think I've already figured out or what I'm doing this week. Let me let me get to what I'm going to be looking for for next week. I've got to go find this wrapping uh, of Ben Rogers, see if I can download it somewhere to hear mm -hmm. some of this wrapping. So that's pretty much going to be my download next week. But this week <laughs> um, I have uh, watched a little... Uh, Paralympics. Uh, I, I'm actually on the USA Triathlon Board of Directors, and uh, uh, we went gold, silver, and uh, picked up a few other medals uh, out in Tokyo. So I uh, watched some paratriathlon, and then I've continued on my journey of Michael Conley. Uh, after I started reading some books in uh, Mexico on my vacation, I'm uh, trying to fit, finish up one of his series. So I'm reading Fair Warning right now. Yeah, way to go, Paralympians! And a shout out to uh, 
Melissa Stockwell, who medaled in Rio, came in fifth in the in the uh, uh, para triathlon this time. But the 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 thing I want to point out is she did it with a broken back, so she was injured in training. And uh, she she's an incredible story, and uh, I encourage people to check out Melissa Stockwell. She's written a book, so thanks for bringing that up, Monica. I'm going to pull a follow well follow well and get all sophisticated and my download this week isn't a download at all it's an actual book which Ben when when Mark came on he's been on a couple times Followell and Mike Reiner are the Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin of the mic drop and <laughs> and you know there may be room for another one you know but so Followell has come on a couple times and for his download he actually held up a bunch of actual books like you know people used to get out of the library or something and I did that I read an actual book it's the John Grisham novel called Suli, which of course immediately attracted my attention, but it's a basketball story about a, a, a young athlete uh, from South Sudan comes to the U.S. to compete in a, in a tournament and all kinds of uh, tragic and, and some happy things happen along the way. It's a really good read. So Suli by John Grisham is my recommendation uh, for this week. So, so Ben, thanks so much for, for joining us. Another uh, Another great show. You really, you really put a great cap around it for us. Hey, uh, it was an honor to be here. And by the way, uh, this is the uh, this is the album. Uh, it was uh, 2006. I put this out. It's called Grown, and there's a picture of my dad. And uh, I wanted to make an album for my kids to let them know why it took me 20 years to get out of college. Not really, but uh, so yeah. Uh, DFW Legacy Series is releasing this on Wax in the next few months, and you can find it on Spotify. It's called. The coffee nods, an homage to uh, to Pulp Fiction. Awesome. There you go, Monica. You and Monica and I will both will break it down with a review next week on the <laughs> mic go. drop. All right. So on behalf of Monica Paul and the Dallas Sports Commission, thanks to our guests, Ben Rogers, Nick Carparelli, and Gina Miller. What a show. Thanks to the mic drop production team, Chris D'Amelia, Marcus Carr, the crew at Vocal Media, and of course our visionary and showrunner, Tony Fay. Until next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is a Tony Fay PR production.